Happy New Year. How many of you are uh, up to uh, greet in, welcome in the new year? Anybody? That's where you all were at the 9 o'clock. Ah, nobody. Fewer response in the uh, earlier hour of people who stayed up to welcome in the new year. Well, my house, we have two kinds of evenings, and it doesn't matter whether it's Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve. There is bath night and not bath night. And... Uh, that determines how I spend my evening, because if it's bath night, it takes about an hour to an hour and a half to get through the whole process and to get the, the kids into bed. So last night was bath night, and usually at bath night I'm more exhausted uh, by the end of the time and not ready to do much, and so I spend a little bit of time getting ready for this morning after bath night and hit the pillow at about 11 o'clock and said, I'll see the new year when I get up. But uh, the passing of an old year and the welcoming in of a, of a new year is full of all kinds of tradition. And uh, when I was a, a kid, I used to always stay up uh, and make sure that I was the first one to uh, or be amongst the first to blow the horn and step outside and shout Happy New Year and throw some confetti up in the air and, and all that kind of uh, fun that we have. And uh, if I was uh, fortunate enough to have a date that evening, I could be assured of at least one kiss for the evening. Uh, that's at the strike of 12 o'clock. So that was a good tradition. And then I imagine they showed on TV that uh, Times Square, were they showing Times Square last night? The traditional, you, you know, you can't have New Year's without Times Square. And uh, some of us remember, you, you know, Guy Lombardo used to be part of all that situation, just kind of made the whole New Year official to, uh, to bring it in that way. And it was a good feeling that you have when there's the passing of the old and the bringing of the new. You can wipe that slate clean. You can say, well, I didn't feel too good about how 1983 dealt with me or I didn't deal very well with it, but 1984 is a whole new time and so I can start all over again. So we make resolutions. Anybody make resolutions for the new year? Mm-hmm. Some... Uh, you know, we resolve to take better care of our, uh, our bodies, this sagging earthly tent that we all have. We're going to uh, eat less and exercise more and hopefully live longer that way. Uh, or we're going to uh, work harder uh, at our job because that sounds better than telling people we're going to work easier. And uh, we resolve we're going to have better relationships with uh, our spouse or with our uh, kids uh, or with our neighbors or friends or maybe even with uh, some enemies, some people that we aren't friendly with, we're going to try to improve those. And Yet when we make all those resolutions, we, uh, we begin to realize that we're more human than we are divine. And we begin to uh, fall short of our goal within the first week. We've already broken two or three of our resolutions and we tend to get a little bit down hard and say, well... <laughs> Wait till next year. I'll get them. I'll get them in 52 weeks or 50, 50 weeks. But uh, this morning, I'd like to to start us off on a new year with some words of encouragement. And I would like for us to to I'd like to make a resolution to you for all of us that we would resolve to have a new walk for this new year of 1984. And if you open with me to the book of Ephesians to chapter four, we'll. Uh, <coughs> Take a look at, at what Paul is talking about. 
when he starts talking about walking. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now this uh, section 4 through 6 of Ephesians uh, is what we call the practical section of uh, kind of how to live the Christian life. In the first three chapters, we label the doctrinal section because Paul tells us uh, about who we are and what God has done for us. And I look back through that uh, first three chapters this week, and I was amazed to find all that God has done for us. I was tipped off when Paul says, therefore, I thought, well, I better look back and see what he's referring back to. He's referring back, I think, to uh, specifically the love of God just preceding uh, chapter 4. But also, uh, in those first three chapters, Paul says that we are uh, adopted as children. We are redeemed by the blood of his Son. That we are heirs with a marvelous inheritance. That we were dead in our sins and he made us alive in Jesus Christ. We were at enmity. With God, but we now have peace because God has brought us into a unique relationship with Him, made us part of His family, and that we really are very privileged people only because of God's great love for us. You see, God is a great psychologist because He knows that if He can get us to believe about ourselves, what He sees, in us, that we'll begin to respond that way. It's the idea that if you always treat someone as a child, then they'll always act as a child. If you were to treat them more as an adult, they'd respond to an adult. And that's not absolutely true, because many of you in here can say, I've got some kids at home that I want to just, I treat them as an adult, and all I do is act like a kid. Well, that's that happens, but but it's true that we need to, to see people in a positive frame. And that's the way God views us. And I was watching the uh, Penn State University of Washington game last Monday night, sitting busily in front of my TV, at the, watching the Aloha Bowl. And uh, Ron Hadley plays for the University of Washington. Ron used to be part of the high school group, and he and I were close friends. And uh, since I was a linebacker in college, and now he's a linebacker, I share that common feeling. I get into every tackle that he makes. I kind of feel a part of that. And uh, at halftime of the game, the two schools had an opportunity to present a picture of their campuses. And I was noticing that that the Penn State, uh, during the Penn State showing, that one of the students made an interesting comment She said that there was a teacher, and I think it was in a math class, that had a tremendous amount of love and care for her students. And that love and care impacted students who had little love for themselves, who cared little about how they were doing, who cared little about that class. But that one professor was able to translate her love and care so that those students began to care about themselves and to care about that class. And I thought, man, you know, if a human being can have that kind of impact on another human being, what kind of impact can God have on us 
if he could break through to us. If he could break through and tell us how much he loves us. And that's really what Paul has done in the first three chapters, has laid out graphically the love that God has for us. So our motivation to walk in this manner worthy of our calling is to respond to God's great love to us, to begin to see ourselves as God sees us, and we'll begin to walk that way. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses the term walk here, I believe. He could have said, uh, I urge you to live in a manner worthy, because I think that's what he's talking about, but the word live isn't very picturesque. It's not very graphic, where the term walk is much more graphic and descriptive. When we say walk, we get a mental picture of what's going on. Somebody is, is taking progressive steps and moving through life. My daughter Abby has been teaching me about walking through life. Uh, Abby is all of two, and unlike her dad, who is like ricochet rabbit going bing, 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 when I go someplace, always in a hurry, uh, Abby is kind of the drag anchor, in my opinion. I'm saying, come on, Abby, let's go, Abby. And she's got her thumb in her mouth, wearing her blanket, tucked under, dragging along the ground, and, and she's just cruising along, looking for a mud puddle to step in, and she's looking for a flower to smell, and she's looking at the trees, and she's just walking along, taking in all of life. And I find that I miss a lot, because I'm trying to charge through life. I'm trying to run through. And so Abby has been a good picture for me to the, to the idea of walking through life. You see, because it's when we walk that we're able to observe what God wants us to observe about ourselves and about other people. See, if I'm running, hopping, crawling, skipping whatever through life, I'm much more likely to miss what God wants me to see. I'm much more likely to miss the people that God wants me to be in contact with, either to help them or to have them help me. And life is also a long distance. It's not a sprinter's race. Could you imagine running through the next 12 months, 52 weeks, 365 days? I get tired thinking about that if I had to run that whole time. But walking is the way that, that we know that we can make it because it requires endurance and stamina to live life. And God says, I just want you to walk through life. So I think it's critical that we see that, that Paul chooses that term as walk so that we know that our motivation is God's love. That's why we are to walk in a manner. And we realize the way we are to go is, is walking, not running, not crawling, but walking. But then what is the quality of that walk? What is to characterize it? What is to describe it? Well, that's what Paul says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word humility here occurs, this particular word that's used for humility occurs six other times in the New Testament. And I think it's helpful if we uh, briefly look at those. I'll read some of the occurrences for you. Uh, Paul is talking to these very elders in Ephesus in Acts uh, 20. And he says, And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. 
And then Paul's writing to the uh, Philippians in chapter 2. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then Paul goes on to tell the Ephesians that they are to become like the person of Jesus Christ who left his godly position and form and took on the, the humble form of a human being and became obedient to the point of dying on a cross. And that that is the example of humility that we are to follow. And then in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. So the humility we're to have is a lowliness of mind, I think, an appropriate mindset towards God and towards other people. And the only way that I believe we can have an appropriate mindset towards other people is to have appropriate focus of who God is and who I am in relationship to God. See, because when I sit down and think about who God is and think about who I am, then it begins to dawn on me that everybody else is treated with worth and respect by God. And if God sees everybody else as having great worth, then I need to be seeing everybody else as having great worth. I can't see myself higher. I can't see myself lower. So that the idea of humility is the idea of giving respect towards other people. Being willing to step back or step down. Not pushing people down so that you are pushed up by pushing other people down. But to lift other people up. You know, it's amazing if we want respect. If we go out and we try hard for respect, we usually end up with disrespect at times, not always. But if we go out and we give other people respect, if we go out and treat them with respect, what happens? We get respect in return. And that's what humility is, is treating other people with respect. I was reading uh, the statements, Statesman several months ago, an article by a woman who works for Morrison Knudsen, and she had been elevated through various ranks. I think the title of the article was uh, um, Gaining Power by Giving Power. And she said that the, whatever secret she had of success was helping other people to do their jobs. Wherever she was a supervisor, she helped other people do their jobs to the best of their ability. She gave them the respect that they needed. And by doing that, she ended up being elevated. Not that she elevated herself. And I thought, you know, I don't know if this lady's a Christian, but that sure is a great example of being a servant leader of what God wants us to be. He wants us to lead by serving others. And that's what humility involves, serving others. And we're going to have all kinds of opportunity in the coming year to serve our spouses, to serve our children, to serve other people in the church. Everywhere we look around us, there will be opportunities for us to exercise humility. The second characteristic is gentleness. This term is very close to the term humility. Sometimes it's translated as humility in the Bible. Sometimes it's translated as meekness. 
It carries with it the idea of strength that's under control. It's the kind of uh, activity uh, or action you would receive from a friend is gentleness, as opposed to what you would receive from someone who's an enemy, which would be very harsh treatment. The idea of of, uh, gentleness is one in which we're kind towards other people. In in my mental picture, I was thinking of uh, Les Goodrich this morning, and he has a new baby son. And all the strength that Les has as a man, but yet as he takes his hands and he puts them under his, his new son and he lifts his son up, there's tremendous strength in Les there. But there's tremendous gentleness as he would treat his new son. I just picture that, that anybody with a child that is strength and control. And that's what we're talking about with gentleness. You know, there may be times when uh, Les may be insulted in the future by his son. And he may have to take that insult without reacting harshly to his son. Or there may be a time when he has to be lenient, as a judge would be lenient, or kind, as a king would be kind. And that's the idea of gentleness, willing to suffer injustice, if need be, uh, to extend friendliness, to maintain relationships with somebody. And you may have had all kinds of opportunity to exercise gentleness during this holiday season. One of my frustrations about Christmas is you've got to go out there and bump elbows and bump bumpers and bump all kinds of things with people to get your Christmas shopping done. And sometimes it gets very frustrating. And sometimes you may have been gentle with the people helping you or the people around you, and sometimes maybe not. But this coming year offers all kinds of opportunities for us to be gentle. And we can do it. As we trust God, as we rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be gentle people with the people that we come in contact with. Then the third area is patience. My, my, how I hated working on this word this week. Because I am not one of the most patient people that you will ever meet. Some of you who have met me know that I am not the most patient person you've ever met. And I am really vulnerable in this particular area. Uh, I am one of those people who uh, is caught up by the mold of the instant society. Everything is instant. You plug in the toaster, it's instant. You put it in the microwave, it's instant hot. You turn on the key, and hopefully it instantly starts in the car. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And if it doesn't, what do you do? You get mad. Start. Come on. And I pray, God, give me patience. Now! (laughs) And that's the way I am. Boy, when I want patience, I want it now. Because really, I'm a very patient person, except when I'm in a hurry. (laughs) Except when somebody's bugging me, I'm really patient. No problem at all. So we need to uh, think in terms of being patient people. And this term, when I was studying it, gave the illustration in Matthew on forgiveness. Where uh, in Matthew 18, Peter comes up to the Lord and says, Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive my brother? Seven? Sounds good. Sounds good to me. I mean, seven times seems adequate. 
And Jesus says, no, no, not, not seven, but 77. That sounds better to me when I'm in need of forgiveness, to have 70 times seven. And uh, <clears throat> Jesus took that opportunity to teach all his disciples about the kingdom of God with respect to forgiveness. He said, there's a king who had a slave, and that slave owed him eight or owed him ten million dollars. No way could the slave pay that debt. The king called him in and said, Pay up. The slave said, I can't. He says, I'm going to sell you, your wife, and your children. The slave said, No, please have patience and compassion. The king said, Okay, I'll have patience and compassion. I'll forgive you the debt. And he let him go. But what did the slave do? He went and found a fellow slave who owed him all of about $18 and said, pay up. And his fellow slave said, I can't. So he threw him in prison and said, you're in here until you pay up. Instead of exercising patience, forgiveness. Now that parable teaches, teaches us two things about this kind of patience. First, it teaches me about how much patience my king has, the Lord God Almighty, how much patience he has towards me. I'm sure I owe God more than the equivalent of $10 million in sins, transgressions, and he's forgiven me, every one of them. And the second thing it teaches me is that patience has an element of forgiveness to it. That being patient just doesn't mean that we sit by and wait until all accounts are reconciled and then we go on. It means we exercise some forgiveness. It means there are times that we have to choose to say, even though this person hurt me, even though this person did something wrong towards me, even though this person botched the assignment or the task that they had to do, it means that we're patient with them. A good synonym for this word is long-suffering. That we hang in with people past the point which we think that we can. We might be in a difficult relationship with someone, and we want to cut it off. It might be in a discipling relationship. We say, God, they aren't going anywhere. I'm wasting my time. But this patience may call upon us to hang in there a little bit longer. Just a little bit longer. You see that we need to be discerning between towing the line of accountability, which the scriptures teach, and I believe they teach that, but discerning between towing the line of accountability and extending the path of forgiveness. And I think the, the last <clears throat> phrase in verse 2, showing forbearance towards one another, is Paul's way of, of modifying patience. So forbearance has the idea of endurance. And we all know people who have hideous little mannerisms that drive us crazy. Maybe your spouse has a mannerism that just drives you crazy every time she does it. Mine does. And if Nancy were here, she's not. She would tell you that there are some things that I do that just drive her crazy. You know, we know people who borrow things and never return them, or they return them broken. We know people who tell dirty jokes when we don't want to hear them. Or they gossip. We don't want to be involved in it. 
We know people that talk too much and they, we wish they wouldn't talk at all. We know people who don't talk at all and we wish they'd say something. And there's those little mannerisms that drive us crazy. And we have them. Everybody has them. And yet Paul says we're to show forbearance towards one another in love. I usually think in terms of enduring by passively sitting by and not saying anything to a person that I'm with who may be difficult to love. Because I figure if I don't open my mouth, I can't get in trouble. But that's not what love is. You see, love, the way God talks about love, is reaching out to the person with the appropriate action or response. It doesn't mean passively sitting by and just letting life go by. It means that we reach out in love. When I encounter somebody who's difficult for me to love, I have to pray that God would help me to love them appropriately, to respond to them appropriately. And so that's showing forbearance to one another in love. And the fourth characteristic of our walk for the new year is being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And what is this unity of Spirit? I think it's something that God gives us through His Holy Spirit when we become Christians. He places us in the body of Christ. He gives us the appropriate place in the body. And then He binds us together. Just as our physical bodies are bound together by bones and muscles and tendons and ligaments and all those kinds of things, that that's what God does. So God gives us this unity. He gives us a marvelous relationship with himself, and then he gives us this unity with the rest of the body. And you just feel that kinship when you become a Christian. You just feel that, that kinship with other Christians, and that's a gift from God. But Paul says that gift can be broken, that unity can be broken, it can be torn apart, it can be rendered totally ineffective. So we have to be diligent to preserve it. Notice we don't have to attain it, because Paul says be diligent to preserve it. It's already there. But why do we need to be diligent to preserve it? Well, unfortunately, because we're human, and because we're human, we're sinful. And that means sometimes we're selfish, sometimes we lack humility, sometimes we lack gentleness, sometimes we lack patience when we're dealing with other people. And lacking those things sometimes disrupts the unity. So how do we maintain the unity? Well, Paul goes on to say that it's the bond of peace. <clears throat> so that we need to be maintaining peaceful relationships. And sometimes that's hard to do. That means allowing people to live differently than we live, than you and I do, or allowing you to live differently than I live. We can have unity and diversity according to the scriptures. You see, as long as we're not violating the moral will of God, we can live life with the freedom that God has given us to live. And that means we make different kinds of choices. That means how I raise my family may be different than how you raise your family. Or how you run your business may be different than how we run this local church. There are all kinds of opportunities for us to do things in different ways, but that doesn't mean 
that we can't have unity. It doesn't mean we can't live in peace with one another. See, I disagree sometimes with other Christian people on how to interpret a particular passage. I disagree with the rest of the staff sometimes on how to do something. Uh, I disagree with organizations, Christian organizations, and the way that they do things. When I get something in the mail and I go, why do they do that? Which means I disagree with the men who chose to do that. And these are fine Christian people. But that doesn't disrupt my unity, my peace with them, until I choose to be antagonistic. Until I choose to push them off. And until I choose to write them off and say, hey, they're no longer a part of my exclusive group because they don't do things the way I want them done. So we can live disagreeing with other people. We have to live that way. We have to allow people the freedom to disagree with us without being disagreeable about it. And that way we can live in peace. And when we do that, we'll have harmony. We need to realize that as human beings, we're far from perfect. But that God has called us into a relationship with himself and a relationship with each other. And that he wants us to live in peace with each other. And so that can be our goal, one of our goals for the coming year of 1984. We can resolve to live in peace with each other. So I would say for uh, the year of 1984 that's coming upon us, let us make some resolutions. But let us resolve to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Because God loves us. He has a great love for us. And he sees great potential in us. He sees us far better than we see ourselves. And when we catch a glimpse of how he sees us, we'll want to respond to that great love. Let us resolve to walk with humility, giving respect and showing respect to other people around us. With gentleness, being kind to other people. Let us resolve to walk in patience, showing forgiveness and love towards other people. How would that affect my Christian life and your Christian life if we were more forgiving people? And let us resolve to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace by disagreeing with other people without being disagreeable and hostile towards them. And let us resolve to walk, not run, not crawl, but walk through 1984 in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the power that God has given us through His Son. Because without doing it that way, it will be impossible for us to have humility and gentleness and patience. It will be impossible for us to glorify God in the way that He wants us to glorify Him. Without His Spirit, we just can't do it. When Paul wrote this letter, he was talking to a group of believers in Ephesus. 
And that's primarily who his focus was on. It was on the relationship of that church when he said, walk in a manner worthy. But he also talks in Ephesians about how we're to deal with the rest of the world, and I think that's part of, of walking in a manner worthy. You see, none of us are around Christians all the time, but we need to start here. We need to start exercising it with this group, but we need to let it spread to wherever we are, having humility and gentleness and patience. And then, you know what? If we pray consistently through 1984, if we ask God to help us to walk a new walk in a manner worthy of him, you know what? He'll do it. I guarantee you he'll answer that prayer because that's his will for us, is to walk that way. So that's exciting for me to know that if I pray that God would help me to be more humble and gentle and patient with people, that he'll do that. Now this morning... We would like to uh, celebrate communion, and that's a time for us to reflect. And I think it's appropriate that we have communion on uh, the first day of a new year, because in some ways, when we celebrate communion, we can wipe the slate clean. We can say, God, forgive me for what I've done. Thank you for forgiving me for what I've done. And we can ask that God would help us to change in the areas that we need to be changed. So as we uh, pass out the elements this morning, take time to reflect. Take time to commune, communicate with God this morning.